None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Let me have you open up your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 3. I'm going to go there this morning. We have been discussing uh, the, and when I say we, it's kind of like within the leadership and also um, my wife and I, we, we talked a little bit about it last night and been discussing the, uh, well, the security of the church, uh, what's going to happen with the church, not necessarily this particular church, but yes, this one in particular for now. But what's going on with the church in general throughout the world, in the United States, California, and even here in San Bernardino? What are we going to do? What's going to happen? How are things rising up against the church? And why are things happening as if everything's coming up against the church? And in Romans chapter 3, and I'm going to have, have you put a little marker there, because from there, I need to take you back a few centuries before we can see what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 3. Because God is faithful, amen? He's faithful and he has been true since the very beginning. And there is nothing out in this world that is out of his control. As a matter of fact, he knew all these things were going to happen. He knows how everything is taking place. He has his finger on the pulse at all times. It's not out of control. Yet, we have to ask the question, what in the world is going on? <laughs> What's happening? Who's to blame? What's going on in this very bizarre time? This fear and confusion and, and uh, political and hate and it, well, all the things that are happening. And so we're in a chaotic time and we live in uh, a world of lies and confusion. And, and it seems like this is all brand new. Well, it's brand new to us. But if you've been a student of the Bible for some time, you know that this is something that happens uh, all the time. As a matter of fact, now that you have your fingers on Romans chapter 1, or 3, excuse me, let me ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 1. And Isaiah, it's kind of found almost in the middle. It's right after Psalms, Proverbs, um, Ecclesiastes, Song, Song of Solomon. And then Isaiah and Jeremiah, two big chapters, two big books. Isaiah has 66, and um, Jeremiah, I believe, has 56, I believe. But Isaiah, Isaiah in the time of Isaiah... People were in sin. They were not listening to God. They were not listening to the prophets. They got captured. They got taken away. And then so they're in this place of um, bewilderment. Sin was just rampant throughout the, the city. And in, in Isaiah chapter 1, God is dealing with the nation that has gone astray. In verses 2 on, he says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children, have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people, and my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they are utterly estranged. Why? Will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faint. From the sole of their foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is a desolate as overthrown by foreigners. God has pictured and sees a picture kind of like what we see today. You can almost go back and say, wow, that was happening then. And it seems to be happening again. And where does all this lead to? In Isaiah chapter 5, a couple of chapters later, in verses 20 and on, he says that this is a desolate, the desolation of a people that has turned against God. And in, in this chapter, in this fifth chapter, the prophecy that is there is, is an indictment amongst all the sins, everything that, that not only Israel has done, but the nations have done, and even up to our point. And in verse 20, he starts off with a woe. This is a divine curse. Woe 
to those who join house to house and add field to field until there is no room, and you who made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. And that's chapter 5, verse 5. Go over to verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. He says, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and violent men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. There seems to be this turned around, mixed up society that seems to say, well, this is good, but this is bad. It's like church is not a good place to be gathering because it's not essential, but we're going to leave the bars open. Uh, You know, this is not an essential place to be. Everyone needs to be away from the church, but abortion clinics are still open. It seems to be that everything is turned upside down. You know, we don't want people to go out in public and spread a disease, yet we're going to go ahead and let people go out and spread this mayhem and riots. And seem to be that everybody seems to be going in the opposite direction of what we thought was bad. Now it's considered to be good. We're desecrating a lot of our monuments, our churches. In Isaiah 28, 17, he says, And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of flies, and waters will overwhelm the shelters. What's happened in Israel over two, almost 3,000 years ago is happening again in the United States. And so where do we turn? What do we do? Whose fault is it? Why does it happen? And, you know, you can probably stand there and you can blame one side. We were talking about this here in the back room a little bit ago. You know, everybody's blaming everybody. It's their fault for jumping the gun and, and going out and causing all this mayhem and, and causing all this to spread of the disease. It's, it's, the, it's a political fault. You know, it's, it's one of the politicians. And everybody's pointing the finger at everybody else. You turn to the news media. You can't even get a straight answer. Everybody has a different response and a different truth. You, you turn to the, the health administration and those officials and, and they're telling you so many different things. It's kind of hard to keep up with what is right and what is wrong. You turn to uh, other leaders, social leaders. It's because of social injustice. You, you, wherever you turn, it seems as if everybody is blaming everyone else and there's nothing that you can do about it and there's nothing nowhere you can go. So the one thing that is is being asked, so what do we do? How do we change this? Well, we need to change the politics. We need to change the, the criminal system. We need to change the, the laws. We need to change, well, you know, to be honest with you, from the very beginning up to this time, it's always been the same. And here's where I would like for you to turn to Romans chapter 3. Because God says this. And in Romans chapter 3, Paul is using a lot of the Old Testament, most of it from Isaiah, and some of it from the book of Psalms. And in in chapter 3, this is the summation of human nature. And and it it pretty pretty much boils down what's out there. Not only where the United States is at, but basically the world. This is where you and I were prior to becoming uh, believers. Prior to Jesus Christ bringing us to life. Prior for us to know the grace of God. And God hasn't changed his moral standards and his definition of humanity is still the same. It was the same back then and it's the same now. And Paul addresses this issue and he says, as it is written in verse 10. And this is interesting because he's taking what's happened back then and he's bringing it to the days of today. And he says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Beloved, this is not a psychological problem. 
This is not a political problem. This is not an economical problem. It's not a social problem. This is a sin problem. It's the nature of man. It's the character of man. This is what man is turned out to be once they turned away from God. He says here, none is righteous. No one. There, there's no human, if there is no human goodness, you start to ask, well, what about all the people that we help? Yeah, I give a glass of water to a, a thirsty man. I might even buy a, a meal for somebody that, that is hungry. And there's that kind of goodness. But what Paul is pointing out here, he says, there's no one righteous. The righteousness of God demands purity, demands perfection. And so before we can even come to know who God is, there has to be this righteousness imputed upon us from God or from Jesus Christ. That's why the cross is so important. This is why we point to the cross every single time because it's what Jesus Christ did for us that gave us the ability to see this righteousness from God and to live not in our own righteousness, which are, as Isaiah would say, filthy rags, but in his righteousness. And God says, and Paul says, there is no righteousness. No one is righteous. No, not one. And that's why we can't be saved by our own works, because no one seeks after God. You might think, well, I was searching, I was thinking, and I was looking for um, God at one time. I think that most of us were at least trying to find the benefits of God, if nothing else. We're trying to find the peace that surpasses all understanding. We're trying to find forgiveness. We're trying to find the, those things that guilt, uh, get rid of the, the things that guilt has debilitated us with. We try to find that, that love that we can get only from God. We want the benefits of God. But most people want the salvation. They don't want the lordship of God. Don't tell me what to do. I don't want to have to be going to church reading my Bible, giving my money. Do it. Don't ask me to do anything. Just give me the things of God. And this is what most people search after. This is what a lot of false religions promise. They promise you wealth, success, prosperity. And you know, forget about the conversion and forget about the repentance. Forget about all those other things. As a matter of fact, many places, what they do is they, they come before a, a congregation and they, they bring all this euphoria and this excitement and never ever pointing people to the cross of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice, the confession, the repentance from sin, the holiness that God demands and desires that we can't get there on, on our own. But we want the healing, we want the power, we want everything else, we want the presence of everything else except for the cross. This is why it's so important that we continue to point to the cross. Paul goes on to say, no one understands as a matter of fact, to the Ephesians, he says that their minds are darkened, that we are dead, we were dead in our trespasses. No one is able to actually see who God is because we don't have that ability. The world does not have that ability. All they can think of and all they can see is what they want, what the world wants. We want the good stuff. We don't want the God stuff. To make it worse, as I said earlier, he says no one seeks after God. Nobody's really looking. Nobody wants. As a matter of fact, all of the religions, they take you away from God. The religions of the world, are, they're, they're an attempt to run from the true God, to run and hide. And, and they're all the, these counterfeits that are opposite, they, they take you in the opposite direction of God. God always takes you to the threshold. He takes you to that throne of grace. He brings you to the place of repentance. He brings you to that place of brokenness, understanding that we cannot stand before God. That's what God does. He brings you in and he says, it's okay. I know you're broken. And we, yet in many other places, we come demanding and asking and proclaiming and, asking and, and trying to get everything we can from God without the repentance. As a matter of fact, one of the things that Isaiah says in chapter, Isaiah 53, he says, all of us like sheep have gone astray, turned away from the Lord, and the, he laid the iniquity of us all. We're like sheep going astray. By nature, that's what we do. We don't want anything to do with God. We, we sense his presence. We know we can't stand in his holiness. We, 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 we sense the, the, the inadequacies that we have. And it's not to make us feel anything less, but to make us depend on him more. 
And all of us have turned aside, Paul says. Together, we have become worthless. The Hebrew word that is used there, worthless, in the Old Testament, in the Greek word, means the sour milk. I don't know if you've ever drank or smelt sour milk, but that's what it's like. It's rancid. We've all gone useless, good for nothing, rotten. Verse 12 says, and no one does good, not even one. Well, what about name your saint? Mother Teresa, Pastor Sal, everybody thought I was perfect. Oh, no, you didn't. Uh, what about Billy Graham? What about Greg Laurie? What about no one? The Bible says there is no one good, not even one. My goodness usually is self-fulfilling or self-indulging. I want to be good so I can feel good about what I've done for you. I want to feel good because of what I've given you or somebody else. And a lot of times, it's not that altruistic. I mean, you know, a lot of it is just for our own praise and accolades. Many of you say, no, no, it's not. I'm genuinely really good. Really, yes, I'm that kind of a good person. Well, just by saying that, it really doesn't make you a very good person. And the Bible even tells us no one is actually good. The Bible goes on from there to the, the conversion or the conversation that we have with God. In verse 13, he says, their throat is an open grave. I know many of you, at least I hope, you would think about your breath and try to brush your teeth and cover it with some mints. But can you imagine somebody with a mouth that smelled like an open grave? We spent a few days in the desert this last week, and right outside of our back door, there was a dead rabbit. Poor rabbit. You know, you looked over, and oh man, in the sun, 112, 110 degrees, after a the next day, it just smelled really bad. This is what Paul is saying, that our mouths are like open graves. Their, their throat is like an open grave. It stinks. The mouth is wicked. It speaks perverseness. It is evil. And, and when there is a stench of death, like a filthy, putrid, ugly smell. Then he adds this. He says, they, they use their tongues to deceive. Deceiving. It, it, it's like that, that root word for fish hook. It's, 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 the, it's the words that they use that they're very sweet and soft, but inside of that bait, it hides the fish hook. And Paul is saying we use our tongues, that people use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps or of snakes is under their lips. It's poisonous. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, and their feet are swift to shed blood. You know that the Bible says, Jesus told us that Satan is a murderer, and he was a murderer from the very beginning. Jesus even upped the scale a little bit, and he says, you know what, I want to tell you something, that any time that you're angry at somebody else, you're, you're committing murder, because you're assassinating that brother's character. He says we need to stay away from that. He's a murderer, he's the beginning of the prime murderers, and his children are all murderers, and they would be murderers, and they continue to kill and we have political parties and we have people that say it's okay to abort and to kill the unborn. We had a, a party years ago that it was okay to kill the, uh, those that weren't just like us, the Jews. Over 8 million people were killed and it was okay. And it was given, they were given the, the authority, they were given the, yes, the okay to go ahead and do this. And when we think about this today, and we think, you know, how does that even affect us? How does that really relate to us? But we do it all the time. I hear that black lives matter, and they do. But they all matter to God. And my life matters. Your life matters. They all matter. But when you get a political agenda and you start going in a different direction, contrary to what God wants you to do, then it becomes exactly what the Bible is saying, that their lips and their mouth, and their voice, the putridness of their life. You see, if, if we make laws that allows people to kill other people or the unborn, then, hey, it's no big deal. If the laws are allowed to continue to do these things, and they seem to be going up and up and up. And so when we start asking, what in the world is going on? You have to stop, start looking at, first and foremost, it's, it's in the nature of mankind. He goes on to say in verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, destruction, shattered, 
something in the pieces, destroyed beyond recognition. Exactly what we're starting to see even today. Verse 17, and the way of peace they have not known. You know, it's surprising is that we start looking at mankind and we think, really? That's what it is? There's some that are not as bad, but all of us, none of us are righteous. Some can pass for okay, but deep down in the heart of sinful man is what Paul lays out for all of us. Everything from an argument between two people that ends up in a shooting to a war that results in the death of 8 million people is a product of this behavior of the character. But the last thing that Paul says here, he says, and and here's, here's the clincher. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Nobody has the fear of God. They can care less. They don't fear God. Proverbs would tell us in 16.6, By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When you have a healthy fear of God, it stops you from moving forward into what you think you should do. There is no fear of any repercussion. There is no fear of condemnation. There is no fear of uh, injustice or God's justice. There, there are not enough pastors and leaders and churches teaching that that is wrong. What you're doing, not only, I'm not talking about in the world, but within the church, there is no fear of God. As a matter of fact, in Proverbs 23, 17, he says, let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom. The fear of the Lord is what, we, what keeps us in a, in a safe distance from actually crossing over the line and, and recognizing, you know, I don't want to offend a holy God. I don't want to offend a holy God causing this turmoil upon myself, my family, and my community. The fear of the Lord, the greatest restraint is fear of God. And to some extent, we, our founding fathers, though they weren't all Christians, but they knew this. You know, if we can instill a fear of God in people, that will keep people from doing all the things that they were doing back in our homeland. If we can instill the fear of God and, and place it within our constitution and just say, you know, this is what we're going to abide by. And when there is a healthy fear of God, it holds people it holds them back to a good extent. And, and so what's happened here is that as the years and the time has gone on, uh, there is no more fear of God. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 1, in verse 18, as Paul starts, before he starts getting to this point, he says, you know, of course the unrighteous aren't, aren't going to make it. I mean, they're, they're the wicked people. Those that think they're righteous, they're not going to make it. Even those that are religious aren't going to make it. And then he says, there is no one righteous. And before that, in chapter 1, he says in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What do they do? They suppress the truth. And the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth that the church should be proclaiming and the truth that every member of every church should know is the truth of God. But that truth, beloved, has been suppressed. It's been taken out of schools. It's been taken out of our government. It's been taken out of everywhere that you can think of. There is planted in the heart of every human being the knowledge of God. God, everybody knows God in a sense and and. Paul says so a little bit later. He says, there is no excuse. We all know God. And, and we have this, this, human, this factor within us that leads us to this reality of God. And it's called human reason. You, you know, you're not going to, you know that if you, you don't put gas in your car, and if it's empty, it's not going to start. It's just, it's reasonable to think that. You know that if, if you do something by putting your hand on top of a hot stove, it's going to get burnt. That's just human reason. Some experience could tell you that as well. And so we have this knowledge, this reasoning, this ability within our mind to be able to make these decisions. They're very basic. But all this reason is, is what, what we call cause and effect. I do one thing, this happens. 
And Paul says in verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. We all know God. Everyone knows God. And this is a verse that we can point people to. There's always a cause and effect. You see this immense beauty. We're looking at the Grand Canyon. Actually, it wasn't the Grand Canyon, but just one of the walls. And we're looking, this is so beautiful. It is just, somebody had to make this. This had to happen somehow. It just didn't pop up. It's amazing on how beautiful the stars are out in the desert. It is amazing on how, how, and there's a cause and effect. We have that reasoning. And that's in us. And God placed it in you and in all humanity to know that there is a cause and there is an effect. Even his invisible attributes. Verse 21, and this is what happens when people do not want to follow what God says or even live out you know, their, their, their own reasoning. He says in verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What we end up doing is we end up worshiping that which was created. And it's almost innate for us to do that. And I can relate to that as a young man, as, as I, I love nature, I love the, the outdoors, the rivers, the waters, the, the seas, and, and, just, and, and I, would, I would just, this is, this is what I'm going to worship, because I can see it, I can taste it, I can feel it, it's there, until I come to realize, yes, I know that there's a creator, but there's something that he expects from me, which is total surrender. That's why... People reject the truth, and they reject the true God. Reason would lead them to, to the true God. When people reason this out, and they start to think about this, you're, you're left with nothing else but to focus on God. And so what does God do? In verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God gave them up. He handed them over to punishment. He hands people over and says, Okay, that's what you want to do. I created this. You know this. There's something innate, yet you're hiding the truth. You're suppressing the truth, and you want to expel that, expound that to other people as well, and let them come up with their own theories. If that's what you want to do, then I'm going to leave that up to you. And, and this is interesting because he says this over and over and over again, at least three times. He hands them over. He gives them over to themselves. He, he just lets them loose to lust of the hearts, to impurities, to their bodies, would be dishonoring among themselves. And verse 26 says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonor, dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. When God turns a society over that has rejected him and he turns them over to, the, to the, their own lustful things, there will be a lot of this. First, there will be a sexual revolution, which is followed by a homosexual revolution. And everything feels good and everything is good because, well, that's just the way I was designed. What happens is that judgment in verse 28 and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. We're talking about a culture. We're talking about a lifestyle. We're talking about the place where we live in today. It was that, that way 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, and now it is today. They can't think straight. Their minds are diluted. That's, that's when you have a political party that builds its platform on killing infants in the womb or destroying the family, 
elevating homosexuality, transgender perversion, and, and, and they're proud of it. And, and the people are so proud of it, they continue to elect other officials to do the same thing. Verse 29 and through 32 says, They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossipers, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And therefore, we have a nation. We have a world that has turned its back on God. Man is naturally sinful. And when God takes his hand off of what he's trying to do there with, with people, then people go exactly against God and do their own thing. They defile themselves to this wretched, corrupt defiledness. In this massive killing of peoples throughout history, you can see how evil has just reared its ugly head over and over again. And people just follow. And as long as you okay it and it's fine, then it is done. And, and some sins come with a high price. They do. And some sins, it's something that affects me. And, and so this is, this is the picture that Paul had painted. But see, Jesus stated it another way. Let me ask you to turn to Mark chapter 7. Okay, and we understand something of the human heart. And we need to understand that if there is no fear of God, that it's going to reject God. And in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 7, and it's also in Matthew, but in Mark chapter 7, God has turned humanity over to the consequences of that rejection. So that when humanity goes down that path, all these things seem to end up to a depraved mind. And so where does it start off at? Well, Jesus said this in verses 14 through 15. And he says, And he called the people to him again and said, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus was addressing the Pharisees. The Pharisees were accusing Jesus of not washing his hands, of, of eating things that he shouldn't have, of not practicing the Sabbath, of not keeping the traditions. And, and so he says, you know, that, that's, that's defiling. You've defiled your body, and that's, that's what's going on, and that's why we won't follow Jesus Christ, because he hangs out with sinners, with prostitutes, with people that are tax collectors, those that we consider to be debased. And this is the religious people. And so Jesus answers them by saying, you know, whatever comes in your body, that doesn't defile you. It's what comes out of your mouth. Out of, that's what defiles you. And he goes on to say in verses 18 and 19, And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile themselves? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and it is expelled. Matthew uses the word for toilet. And, and whatever comes in, it, it just goes out. And, and that stuff is not the defiling part. Of course, there's some things that you shouldn't be eating. You know, some of you, that especially in sugar diabetes, don't eat donuts. They're bad for you. Um, there's some things that you shouldn't eat that are going to kill you. But what Jesus is referring to here are things that, you know, that, that are very basic things that we just take in. And then he goes on in verse 20 and he says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, and he lists these things, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and that's what defiles a person. The things that come out of the mouth. The things that we are saying. You can say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. You know, I was just kidding. Whatever comes out of the mouth is what's in the heart. If you have a heart full of wickedness, wicked things are going to come out of your mouth. If you have a heart full of love, loving things are going to come out of your mouth. If you have a heart full of anger, angry words are going to come out of your mouth. If you have a heart full of patience, words of patience and encouragement are going to come out. You see what I'm saying? And Jesus Christ is pointing this out. He says, those of you that have 
that, that, that are there that I've elected, those of you that, that I have chosen, those of you that have been regenerated, you have a new heart. But we have a society right now that needs to have a transplanted heart. And here's the truth. You're not wicked because of what happened to you on the outside. You're not wicked because of all the things that are going on. It's not some historical figure that did something to you or to your parents or to your grandparents or anybody else that has caused you to be the way you are. It's because of a wicked heart. And that's profound. And we need to think about that. And we need to look at this from within the church and outside. And we need to recognize this. And we need to really focus on what God wants us to do with this information. All of it comes from within. All of it, not from without, not from somebody else, but from within. So how do you restrain this? How do you keep this from getting out and getting ugly? And how do you do this? Well, first of all, as I mentioned earlier, we all have a conscience. We have this human reasoning. And I didn't have notes for today. A lot of this is just things that we've been talking about these last few days. A lot of this is just, you know, what's been on my heart and, and, and understanding what I know about Scripture and about humanity. But there's also this ugliness. This, there is this ugliness of, of what's on this side. But there's also something that God has provided for us. Because if, if we just look at that and say, man, we're really in a mess, and God's not going to do that to you. He's not going to put you on this planet and say, okay, go figure it out. He's put some checkpoints. He's put some markers. He's put some, some very powerful restraints for God's people to be able to, to look at and, and, and lean on and understand that God is still in control. And the first thing is the conscience. We know conscience exists because, well, so many people are full of guilt and full of anxiety. They're full of fear. They're full of all these things that, that, that they've been going through. And it's the conscience that seems to be attacking uh, itself. Animals don't have consciences. One of the dogs in my house just tore up my water hose. He thought it was funny. He's sitting there playing in the water. I had the water hose on. It was turned off, but it was, you know, there's no conscience there. They don't, they can care less. Animals don't have a conscience, but you do. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says this, and this is kind of, it's, it's, let me just break this down for you. In Romans 2, and we talked about this last week. We talked about the importance of godly men. And, and, and Paul said this, he says, For God shows no partiality, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That's those who haven't had the written law given to them. In other words, people say, well, what about those that don't have a Bible? They, you know, they don't know the good things about, about God. Okay, well, this is what Paul is addressing. And then he says in verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And then in verse 14, he goes, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. There are certain things that Gentiles, non-believers, people, they just won't do. Because they know that that's just not right. That's not, my conscience won't let me to kill somebody. My conscience won't let me to steal something from somebody that belongs to somebody else. And there are a lot of people that are unregenerated. There are a lot of people that don't, don't know the Bible. But instinctively, they know that that's just not right. There are a lot of things that people recognize and realize because of a conscience. And, and it's that conscience that should keep you back from... Uh, even if you're not saved, to be able to stop yourself and say, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to cross that line. I'm not going to go in that direction because it is part of our human sense that God has given us. He's given us that ability to see those things. And what we are to do with that is recognize that it's God given us that. And, and it's God given us that ability. And we thank him for that. Otherwise, you know, we'd be sitting here getting mad at people and, you know, I wish I had a gun. You know, shoot somebody or run them over or whatever and with no conscience whatsoever. And that's not the way God intended us to live. It's a gift of God. And you ought to be thankful for, for that, right? I mean, it's like pain. pain. Whenever pain happens, you know that you can numb the pain with medication. You know that. But it would be best 
um, not to fall off a ladder. It, it would be best not to jump out in the middle of the street and get run over. It would be best not to cut yourself. I and mean, you can hide the pain. You can mask the pain with medication. But it would be best just to stay away. And that's what our conscience does. And it tells us. And that, that fear of the Lord leads us to that point of, you know, I don't want to go in that direction. Because there's some, something in the back of my mind, and God has placed this in everyone. But the more that the truth is pushed back, the more that the truth is suppressed, the more that the truth is taken out of schools, out of homes, the more that the truth is, is not being taught, the less of a conscience that people have. Again, we talked about this last week, a couple of weeks ago. This is why Paul says that their conscience is seared. Their conscience is so seared, and conscience is a, is a big word in, in Scripture as he's talking about how a person's conscience can be so seared to it, it just it's not affected anymore. And this is where you get a lot of your, you know, people that do violent crimes. They could care less on what happens to society. Society has called them psychopaths. The Bible calls them debased. But how do you attack the conscience? How do you do that? How, how can you have a society that, that doesn't seem to have any conscience? What do you do? Well, we, we talk about certain people that don't have things, that, 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 that do things that are unconscionable. So how, how do we stop that? Well, there's two ways that we can do. Well, first of all, one of the ways that they stopped it is they, were, they, they would misinform people. They would tell people, number one, you know, doesn't matter what you do. It's okay. It's okay to be whatever you want to be. It's okay to uh, you know get rid of your child. It's okay to and and so there's misinformation in our media, our politicians, the the social activists. Everybody is throwing out accusations. Everything is going in so many different directions. You have no idea on where to turn. Everybody wants to do the right thing, and we do. Everybody wants to make sure that everybody's okay. We want to include everyone. And we want to make everyone happy. We, we want this to stop at whatever cost. Beloved, we're, we're falling into a very dangerous place when you say that. It, it, it's the, the, it's, it doesn't matter how we do it as long as we get to the right point. And whatever everybody else agrees on, that's what we're going to do. We're going to do that. And so we misinform. We send our children to colleges and they get pounded in with hate and with all this negative uh, socialistic, capitalistic, all kinds of different types of ideas of things that are going on in, in the world and they bring it out and, and our kids, a lot of our kids now are coming out with a different thought and idea. Many of them have left church, left the Bibles. They no longer follow what God is saying. The conscience is not a law, but it's a mechanism. And you can shut it down if you wanted to. But the conscience is something that we have to get back to. You know, and that's one way that, that, that they've been taking it away from us. They've been taking the, the good conscience, the thing that we should do, by taking God's word out. We, have, we don't have God's word anymore. The other thing that happens is that a lot of people tell you, well, you, don't, you shouldn't feel guilty about the things that you do. That's just your nature. That's just who you are. That's just how you were born. You know, I mean, you should have seen me the way I was before, but today, okay, I'm better, but I'm not just as good as what we're supposed to be. Yesterday, I was talking to somebody about this and says, you know, the reason why there's a lot of anger in your life is because you're, you're not walking in the Spirit. You're living in the flesh. Because the... The, the sin of the flesh, the, you know, by walking in the flesh, is, is, uh, if, we, if we don't walk in the Spirit, then we're going to give over our desires to the sinful nature. And the fruit of the Spirit, of course, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Justice and self-control. But when you walk in the flesh, then you give yourself over to all these things we talked about here just a little bit ago. Anger, debauchery and all these things that come out of it. And so when you don't feel guilty, and people say psychologists will even tell you, well, it's okay. I mean, don't have to feel guilty about that. Just let it go. You don't have to feel bad about yourself. You're a wonderful person. You're the best. You can do anything you want to do. You're heroic. You're a good person. Everybody's good. You just make bad decisions. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says there is no one righteous. 
There's no one good. You ought to be able to do whatever you want. You live any way you want. Don't let anybody make you feel guilty. And the moment they make you feel guilty, then it's called the hate crime, and we can prosecute them, and so don't worry about it. We got your back. This is where we're at today. And they just keep driving all these normal or supposedly normal words into people's life. And so people's conscience gets seared. But we have a conscience, folks, and that I, I, we can... We can, God can use that to help garner all the strength and energy to be able to move God's agenda, the kingdom forward. The second restraint that we have is the family. And, and the second restraint is, is what God has put into society, is the family, the structure. It's designed to help with restraining children and, and husbands and wives from uh, adultery so they have one another to, to fulfill that aspect of their life, the children to be trained up in the way of the Lord. Look at this verse in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is out of what we call the Shema. Uh, Israel was told to hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And these are the commandments that I'm giving you today. And then in verse 6, he says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. This is the original Sunday school. The church is not the Sunday school. We're here to reinforce. And what's happened is that now we are trying to make the family better, but not reinforce what the family's already become. The church has always been there to support, to help, to build up what is being taught in the home. And we come and we, we give you tools and we help you and the children come and they enjoy their time with friends of like-minded, like faith, and they grow together and they go home and they study these things at home during Bible study, during uh, times at night, and we sit down and we talk about it and we share with one another on what God has taught us and what he's doing. That's the original Sunday school. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians, Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There needs to be discipline. And in today's society, we have, we have homes with single moms raising children. We have children, fatherless children, and, and that's just what our country, what our politics has pretty much put out there. You can hear some of these politicians, some of these people, some of these uh, commentators will tell you that one of the biggest reasons that we have all this mayhem going on is because there are, there are no fathers at home. Fathers are absent. We have created a welfare state where you don't need a father. All you need is to have children and they will take care of them. The family, father and mother, one, not whatever you want to make it. It's always been designed to be a man and a woman. Family is divinely created. It's a divinely created institute. It is the first institution that God created. Before the church, before the universities, it was the family, husband and wife. And it's always been meant to be that. It's the divinely created institution for the formation of restraining sinners. And it's designed to help you keep everybody in check. Family is a divinely created institution for the formation of restrained sinners who by generations of morality, discipline, love, virtue, and obedience become a benefit to society, enjoy God's gifts, and are grateful. Let me say that once more, one more time. Family is the divinely created institution for the formation of restrained sinners who by generations of morality, discipline, love, virtue, and obedience become a benefit to society, enjoy God's gifts, and are grateful. That is what the society, that's what, that's what the family was designed to be by God. And we have so many families that are broken. It's not the norm anymore to have a two-parent family. That's the exception nowadays. So if you want to trash society, get rid of the conscience, get rid of the family. 
If you want to take over and, 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 and let things just go crazy and haywire and rioting and looting and whatever, well, then just take those two things away. And you get rid of all the, the conscience and its illegitimate source of guilt, and, and you go after the family and go after the family of God, and you have the feminist movement come in so that men are basically trashed and, and they lose all sense of respect or authority in the family, then bring in divorce and, and bring in somebody else to take care of things for them financially, uh, immorality, homosexuality, uh, gender confusion, you name it, yeah, destroy the family. And you're going to have a debased society. So when any society has most of its children being born without a mother or father, married in a home, this is what you get. You get people that reject God, reject the truth, suppress the truth, and you end up in the place where we're at today. We need a strong family. We need a strong family to raise children. Another restraint that God has given us, not only our conscience, not only uh, our family, but also our government. A government. In Romans chapter 13, if you turn there with me, in Romans 13 verse 1 it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. I, I get into an argument a lot of times about politics because, you know, I, I can tell you where I stand if you'd like to know, but I won't tell you from here. And, and the, in the political bird, there's the right wing and the left wing. On a bird, both wings are important. They're a part of the same animal. And unfortunately, in our state, we have both the right and the left. And it's all a part of the same system. It, it has, and I, I'm not going to say it doesn't have anything to do with the kingdom of God, but it, it, there's one that will suppress and one that will up, upbring and uplift. But politics itself does not further the kingdom of God. Only you, beloved, can further that kingdom of God. Now, the political system God has placed in effect for a specific reason. Why he raised up uh, you know, Hitler? I don't know. Why he raised up uh, Obama? I don't know. Why he raised up Trump or the Kennedys? You take, pick your president. But God is doing something in the balance of nature and what he's accomplishing at the end, and he's using every one of these political leaders to accomplish his agenda. And so God says, you know, it would be best for you just to listen to what they have to say. Look what he says in verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Don't know if you remember this when we were going through Romans chapter 13. We said Rome was a very, you know, a very evil place, yet they had the Roman Empire, they had the Caesars, they had all the governors, senators, and, and everybody that, that was established there. Paul is saying, God put them in the place there. Christians are looking at each other and saying, Really? This guy? Yeah, God. God put him there, and he's there for a reason, to keep you in check, to keep you in line, and you need to submit to the authorities, because when you don't, look what he says here in verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Basically what Paul says is, you don't want to get in trouble? Well, stop doing bad things. You don't want to get pulled over by a cop? Stop speeding. You know, you don't want to get beat up? Well, don't fight back. <laughs> you, you don't want, you know, it's amazing. I haven't been pulled over. I know a lot of people say they've been pulled over for driving while whatever. I haven't been pulled over. Mauro, have you been pulled over? Oh, you're, you're probably not the right person to ask. <laughs> have you been pulled over? Not, le not recently? No. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> No, you, you know, as long as you are doing what you need to, should be doing, there's no reason to be afraid of the law. And to be honest with you, there's very, there's, every once in a while I'm, I'm driving, and, and if, I see a, if I see a red and white or a black and white, and I see a, and I, I, first thing I do is I look at my speedometer, I look over my shoulder, look into my rearview mirrors, is he going to get me? Okay? Fear sets in. And those are the restraints that God has placed, the conscience, the family, and the government. And they're needed. And to say that we have to get rid 
of police officers. Really what we need to get rid of is sin. What we need, really what we need to do is build the family back up. Really what we need to get rid of is everything else except for the officials that God has placed into authority. Now, are there some that are going to be bad? Yeah. But for the most part, they're not. And one of the last things I wanted to share with you is this, is that you know another restraint that God has placed upon us and given us to lean on to and hold on to is the church. The church. And the church, in the one thing that is needed right now more than anything else, is the church. You are needed in this society more than anything else. A lot of churches in the communities that are, that are not doing what they're supposed to do, not preaching the truth, candy coating, a lot of things. You know, it, it, almost, it almost pains me to, to say this. A lot of friends that I know have gotten involved in this social justice. They have gotten involved in saying, we will kneel and we will support and we will bow down and we will help. We want to include everyone. Everyone should feel safe. The problem is there are a lot of people that don't want anything to do with God. They got debased minds. They're running from God. Nobody seeks God. Nobody wants his justice. They want his benefits. The world doesn't want anything to do with the church. It's okay to close it down, and it's okay to burn it down, but don't let anybody go downtown to go into the church. And, and it seems like right now that's the worst place for anybody to be. Unless, of course, you are all-inclusive. We include everyone. And a time is coming, beloved, when we are going to have to make a choice. It, it, it pains me to know that some of the leaders that I have been following and that I have been looking up to have actually submitted to the agenda of this, the politics that we have now. I have, I have really just been struggling with this myself, and as we've been talking about this, what are we going to do? What's our next step? Where are we going to be as a church? To see people on Facebook proclaiming and sharing, and this is what we ought to do, and I'm thinking, that does not further the kingdom. It does not further the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 5, let me ask you to open up there. We'll conclude with this. In Matthew 5, verse 13. You know, in, in, as I was talking about our conscience, our conscience is a personal authority. The family is a parental authority. The government is a social authority. But the church is a spiritual authority. And the church more than anything, right now, is what is needed more than anything. And that is not just my saying, that's what God's Word says. And I'm not going to give you political statements or my feelings as to what has to happen, but here's what the Bible says. Jesus told the disciples, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. We're, we're not just an isolated group in a closed-up building. We are the salt of the earth. We're supposed to be preserving. We're supposed to be going out and, and keeping things fresh. I don't know if you know this or not, but salt is the only rock you can eat. Salt, was uh, that's where we get our word salary from because they used to pay you in salt. That's why sometimes they would say, uh, he's not worth his salt, uh, because it was, it was such a high commodity. It was a, a, such a high commodity that people would, would mine it and, and gather it and, and trade with it, and it was used in so many different ways. And, and salt, what it does, it preserves, especially during travel. It's something that you need. They didn't have refrigeration back then, so they'd cover everything in salt, and it would travel well, especially since they didn't have the, the transportation that we have today. And salt was a preservative, and it brought uh, flavor. And it also uh, created this thirst. And Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. And salt, all these the, the critical factors that were needed in civilization, it is needed right now more than any other time in our history, beloved. We need that salt. 
the dependence on keeping things fresh and good and clean. You know that salt was more valuable than gold in Rome? Our faith, our light, our saltiness should be worth more than anything that you own. Should be worth more than anything that you can have. Our salt needs to be the salt of the earth for influencing of goodness, of influencing of virtue, of influencing of humility, of influencing of God's love, of influencing of His grace, His patience, unselfishness, kindness. That saltiness that Jesus Christ said that we are, we ought to be as a church, as an individual. You are the salt of the earth. This is why Peter says that we are a holy people. We're a holy people. We're set apart. We're the priesthood of God. <coughs> now, once the saltiness loses its saltiness, it just becomes like the rest of the world. If it loses its saltiness, morino is the name that they use. When it loses it, when it, loses it, it becomes a morino, which is where we get our word moron. It's unintelligible. The message is foolishness. The message is just, you know, it's just like everybody else. We kind of mumble ourselves in there with everyone else. Salt is directly a work that is done secretly, but it also is a godliness that is done righteously. And it, and it is done with it. We don't have to go out and say, hey, I got salt. You just be the salt. You do, you, you do the characteristics of what salt does. But light, on the other hand, and in verse, the next verse, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God your Father who is in heaven. See, the shining light is something that you project. You are salt and you are light. And all of it has to point to the cross. All of it has to point to what God has done. All of it has to point to who He is. And in a society that is walking in the dark, that is running from place to place, trying to find some sort of flavor, in a, in a society where there's so much chaos and mayhem, and looking for some sort of leadership, the church needs to be the one to be able to proclaim what Jesus Christ has done. Those are the things that are going on because of mankind. Here are the solutions. How do we fix this? As a church, put this into practice. Put this into practice. Restore the law of God so that the conscience can be informed. we got to inform minds. Restore the family so restrained children can be the next generation. Restore the government to its role of true justice. But most importantly, restore the church back to its holiness. Is, is it going to happen? I pray, I pray it does. That's, that's the intended desire. Uh, you know, one thing I know is that if we don't do anything, nothing's going to happen. But I also know that all of this is leading to a point where Zechariah, excuse me, where Isaiah, and we go right back to Isaiah, this is where we end up at. In Isaiah chapter 59, verse 20, and he says, A Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgressions, declares the Lord. In Isaiah 50, 59, verse 21, As for me, this is my covenant with them. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. And then he concludes by saying, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall not cover the earth, the thickness, darkness of the people. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. He's coming. He's returning. And we know this, because that's exactly what he said. All these things are to add up to that point. We do our part. We continue to enlighten people with God's word so that they are not running around in ignorance and, have, and, and getting away from a seared conscience. We build up the family. 
We build up the family and help the family to grow together. We, we influence the government with, with, uh, with just prayer and, and, and understand and, and do as the government is leading us, unless, of course, they're leading us not to meet or not to worship God. But the church needs to grow in the knowledge and in the wisdom of God. Let me ask you to stand. God is not done with us yet. The fact that God continues to pour out into this church, the fact that God continues to bring people of ministry, the fact that God continues to move us in the right direction, God is not done with us yet. But he is waiting for this church. He's waiting for this sleeping giant to rise up and do what he's called us to do. We, as a church, are the salt and the light of this culture. Father in heaven, thank you once again. And we do come before you recognizing in the many things that we have failed. But we also thank you, God, for the strength that you've given us to accomplish what we have. And Lord, it will never be uh, completely done in our life. And so we ask, God, that you give us strength for one more day, one more action, one more reading one more witness. And help us as we become that salt and light within the world. We thank you, Father, that you saw it good that we be here today and, and to move in this direction. We do pray for our political leaders. We pray, God, that you just continue to use them. Your agenda is still your agenda, not mine. I pray for the family members of this church. I, play, I pray for every family, Father, that, that is within the sound of our voice that you continue to build them up and help them to grow and to develop, to become that, that, that one family unit that we need within this country, within our city, within our church. And we pray, God, for our, our conscience to continue to work within that tool. We know that the conscience is not your law. We know that you use, Holy Spirit, you use our conscience to help us make the right decisions. So, Father, as a church, as a people, we humbly come before you asking for direction in all things. Thank you, Lord, once again for this time that we share, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone says, Amen and Amen.